Today is the third day of our 2023 summer seven-day session. Uh, it's the 10th of January, and we'll be continuing to read from and comment on passages from The Unborn, The Life and Teaching of Zen Master Banke, translated and with an introduction by Norman Waddell. left off where um, Banke was, was going into um, what gets between us and our unborn Buddha mind. He says, despite the, f the fact that you have arrived in this world with nothing but an unborn Buddha mind, your partiality for yourselves now makes you want to have things move in your own way. You lose your temper, become contentious, and then you think, I haven't lost my temper. That fellow won't listen to me. By being so unreasonable, he has made me lose it. And so you fix belligerently on his words and end up transforming the valuable Buddha mind into a fighting spirit. By stewing over this unimportant matter, making the thoughts churn over and over in your mind, you may finally get your way, but then you fail in your ignorance to realize that it was meaningless for you to concern yourself over such a matter. As ignorance causes you to become an animal, what you've done is to leave the vitally important Buddha mind and make yourself inwardly a first-class animal. So in this, we, we had a look at the beginning of the, this last time, and in, it's the way he, he, he frames it, um, being an animal, uh, at this point anyway, is, is um, a metaphor for living this life in ignorance. all the different realms of unenlightened existence, you could say are aspects of our own human experience. But then he also uh, appears to go beyond this in the next passage. You're all intelligent people here. It's only your ignorance of the Buddha mind which makes you go on transforming it into a hungry ghost, fighting spirit or animal. You turn it into this and into that, into all manner of things, and then you become those things. Once you have, once you've become an animal, for example, then even when the truth is spoken to you, it doesn't get through to you. Or supposing it does, since you didn't retain it even when you were a human being, you certainly won't have the intelligence as an animal to keep it in your mind. So you can see how we've, we've moved, it seems, from the, a metaphor here into um, literally transmigrating through the different realms. So you go from one hell or animal existence to the next, or spend countless lifetimes as a hungry ghost. In, in modern terms, we can, we can um, think of the hungry ghost as being um, some, an addict, somebody with a... Um, uh, one or other kind of addiction problem. 
You pass through lives and existences one after another in this way, in constant darkness, transmigrating endlessly and suffering untold torment for thousands of lives and through endless kalpas of time. And during it all, you have no opportunity whatever to rid yourself of the burden of your evil karma. This happens to everyone when, through a single thought, they let the Buddha mind slip away from them, so you can see that it's a very serious matter indeed. The Buddhist teaching really emphasizes the, the importance and preciousness of being born as a human being, where we have this, this mixture of uh, suffering and joy in our lives, which uh, opens up a space, you could say, for us to undertake spiritual training, spiritual work. We're, we're motivated by our suffering, yet not too uh, enmeshed in, in our negative habit patterns that we can't respond and change at least some of us anyway. So it, it's, it, it can be um, really needed that we acknowledge this, this, the preciousness of this human life. And, and the, the, there is an urgency to our realizing ourselves because we don't know what our circumstances will be in the next lifetime or subsequent ones to that. The, the teaching is that our karma doesn't all evenly kind of resolve itself, but um, in, a, in a patchwork fashion. So we can't make predicts and predictions based on our present circumstances and this doesn't just go for li subsequent lives, but subsequent days and months and years, we, we don't know what our, what our karma, how our karma will unfold, what will eventuate, how long our health will last, how long our lives will last. Therefore, you must thoroughly understand about not transforming the Buddha mind into other things. As I told you before, not a single one of you in attendance here today is an unenlightened person. You're a gathering of unborn Buddha minds. If anyone thinks, no, I am not, I am not enlightened, I want him to step forward. Tell me, what is it that makes a person unenlightened? He, he doesn't answer the question here in, in, in the text, but we could say conditioning is what makes us unaligned. Habit patterns. And anything that's conditioned can be deconstructed, be un, untangled. In fact, there are no unenlightened people here. Nonetheless, when you get up and begin to file out of the hall, you might bump into someone in front of you as you cross over the threshold, 
or someone behind you might run into you and knock you down. When you go home, your husband, son, daughter-in-law, servant, or someone else may do something that displeases you. If something like that happens and you grasp onto it and begin to fret over it, sending the blood to your head, raising up your horns, and falling into illusion because of your self-partiality, the Buddha mind turns willy-nilly into a fighting spirit. I love this, um, this image here of, of somebody's horns emerging from their skull as they fall into illusion. It has, a, has a, almost a, a cartoon quality to it. But we do we all, in, in a sense, have these, these horns that, that come forth when we're perturbed by something. We literally, literally turn into a, a demon when that happens. We become possessed by our anger or our annoyance. And, and uh, we may see these things as little, but that's where um, anger and violence start, with little things, with irritations. Until you transform it, you live just as you are in the unborn Buddha mind. You aren't deluded or unenlightened. But the moment you do turn it into something else, you become an ignorant, deluded person. All illusions work the same way. By getting upset and favoring yourself, you turn your Buddha mind into a fighting spirit and fall into a deluded existence of your own making. So whatever anyone else may do or say, whatever happens, leave things as they are. Don't worry yourself over them and don't side with yourself. Just stay as you are, right in the Buddha mind, and don't change it into anything else. If you do that, illusions don't occur and you live constantly in the unborn Buddha mind. You're a living, breathing, firmly established Buddha don't you see you have incalculable treasure right at hand? People may, hearing this may have questions about um, what to do when we, we see injustice. And um, it would be a good question to put to Banke. I don't know how he would respond, but um, the teaching of Buddhism is a teaching of compassion. And so seeing injustice, seeing uh, people being um, 
damaged, being hurt by some some aspect of the the, the government or um, other people. It seems to me that there is a place for um, not leaving things as they are in that case. But how we do that is becomes very important. If it just adds to the sum total of of anger of anger and ignorance, then it's not going to be much help. So to be able to come to, to these places where we seek to change things with an attitude of uh, the, our unborn Buddha mind, not judging or jumping to conclusions, but acting out of uh, our compassion. And there's an example here, actually, in this, in this um, the account of, of um, Banke's life, that when his his teacher, um, that his Chinese teacher, um, was faced with uh, injustice, when the, the the rival Chinese monk came came to Nagasaki, uh, Banke, when he learned about this, um, did his very best to to help resolve the situation. His efforts came to nothing, we're told, but. But he didn't just stand and look on. He he actively um, stood up for uh, Dosha and tried to find him a new place to teach from. So I think that in that sense, our question can be answered by that that example. While you're walking down a road, if you happen to encounter a crowd of people approaching from the opposite direction, none of you gives a thought to avoiding the others, yet you don't run into one another, one another. You aren't pushed down or walked over. You thread your way through them by weaving this way and that, dodging and passing on, making no conscious decisions in this, yet you're able to continue along unhampered just the same. Now, in the same way, the marvelous illumination of the unborn Buddha mind deals perfectly with every possible situation. Suppose that the idea to step aside and make way for the others should spontaneously arise in your mind before you actually moved aside. That too would be due to the working of the Buddha mind's illuminative wisdom. You may step aside to right or to the left because you have made up your mind to do that, but still the movement of your feet, one step after another, doesn't occur because you think to do it. When you're walking along naturally, you're walking in the harmony of the unborn. This, this is one of the most uh, probably well-known um, images that Banke uses to uh, illustrate the, the functioning of our unborn Buddha mind. And after hearing this for the first time, um, next time I was in that situation of a, a, a busy crowd, it was actually at a um, public market there in, in Rochester, it was quite amazing just to suddenly become aware 
of that very thing, the way in which this, this, these crowded um, alleyways between the market stalls are full of people and basically everybody moving um, as they needed to so as not to, to bang into anybody and how, how um, smoothly that generally goes. Of course there are exceptions, but um, just to appreciate that, the harmony that's there unconsciously as people um, interact in a, in a busy street, pedestrians. When we do um, breath practice or um, uh, kinhin, walking meditation, we also become aware of the way that we, um, our breath happens without our, our conscious will, and same with our, our walking. Putting one foot in front of the other, changing the, the weight uh, from one to foot to the other. It's quite a, a complex series of, of moves that are required and yet we can be walking along and deep in conversation with somebody and still be able to do that. Another example of this sort of um, artless uh, movement, uh, people I'm sure have seen uh, flocks of starlings flying as one in these big big clouds shifting and, and changing shape but, but beautifully coordinated no no pile of dead starlings appears on the on the, the ground underneath the, the flock where, where the, the, the crashes have happened this um, process is is, um, is flowing and, and seamless Skipping ahead a bit. Your self-partiality is the root of all your illusions. There aren't any illusions when you don't have this preference for yourself. If the men sitting next to you start quarrelling, it may be easy for you to tell which of the disputants is in the right and which is wrong because you are not involved yourself. You are a bystander, so you can keep a cool head. But what if you do have a part in it? Then you take your own side and oppose the other fellow. As you fight with one another, you transform your Buddha minds into fighting spirits. Or again, because of the Buddha mind's wonderful illuminative wisdom, such things as you have done and experienced in the past cannot fail to be reflected in it. If you fix onto those images as they reflect, you are unwillingly creating illusion. 
The thoughts do not already exist at the place where those images are reflecting. They are caused by your past experiences and occur when things you have seen and heard in the past are reflected on in the Buddha mind. But thoughts originally have no real substance. So if they are reflected, you should just let them be reflected and let them arise when they arise. Don't have any, any thought to stop them. If they stop, let them stop. Don't pay any attention to them. Leave them alone. Then illusions won't appear. And since there are no illusions when you don't take note of the reflecting images, while the images may be reflected in the mind, it's just the same as if they weren't. I think here of that, that um, line from Makawin, Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen, which we just recited. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. Our thoughts in, intrinsically um, ephemeral, without substance, can be transformed into no thought, depending on how we um, approach them. A thousand thoughts may arise, yet it's just as though they hadn't. They won't give you a bit of trouble. You won't have any thoughts to clear from your mind, not a single thought to cut off. To accept, we have to accept um, the state of our minds, what we have to work with when we sit down on the mat. But then if we can understand that everything that we experience, everything that arises, is the, the secretion of the brain, you could say, then we won't be dragged down by our thoughts and feelings. Next, um, Banke goes on to talk um, a little bit about sleep and tells the story of, a, of in one um, monastery of, of people um, striking and castigating a monk who had fallen asleep. He says, if you stay awake, you stay awake. If you sleep, you sleep. When you sleep, you sleep in the same Buddha mind you were, you were awake in. When you're awake, you're awake in the same Buddha mind you were sleeping in. You sleep in the Buddha mind while you sleep and are up and about in the Buddha mind while you're up and about. That way, you always stay in the Buddha mind. You're never apart from it for an instant. You're wrong if you think that people become something different when they fall asleep. If they were in the Buddha mind only during their waking hours and changed into something else when they went to sleep, that wouldn't be the, the true Buddhist Dharma. It would mean that they were always in a state of transmigration. All of you people here are working hard to become Buddhas. 
That's the reason you want to scold and beat the ones who fall asleep. But it isn't right. You each received one thing from your mother when you were born, the, Buddha, the unborn Buddha mind, nothing else. Rather than try to become a Buddha when you just stay constantly in the unborn mind, sleeping in it when you sleep, up and about when you're awake, you're a living Buddha in your everyday life at all times. Um, one of the, the sort of ideals that's held up in Zen practice is um, being able to continue one's practice through one's sleep and then taking it up once one is awake. Um, so we were told sometimes to have the last thought as we, as we uh, drifted off to sleep to be the, the practice, mu or what, who am I? And then to try and have the first thought on awakening also be the koan. And in this way there's a kind of a continuity between sleeping and waking. There's not a moment when you're not a Buddha. Since you're always a Buddha, there's no other Buddha in addition, in addition to that for which for you to become. I'll say that again. Since you're always a Buddha, there's no other Buddha in addition to that for you to become. Instead of trying to become a Buddha, then a much easier and shorter way is to be a Buddha. Then he gives an example of um, this just being. The unborn Buddha mind <coughs> deals freely and spontaneously with anything that prevents it, presents itself to it. But if something should happen to make you change the Buddha mind into thought, then you run into trouble and lose that freedom. Let me give you an example. Suppose a woman is engaged in sewing something. A friend enters the room and begins speaking to her. As long as she listens to her friend and sews in the unborn, she has no trouble doing both. But if she gives her attention to her friend's words and a thought arises in her mind as she thinks about what to reply, her hand stops sewing. If she turns her attention to her sewing and thinks about that, she fails to catch everything her friend is saying and the conversation does not proceed smoothly. In either case, her Buddha mind has slipped from the place of the unborn. She has transformed it into thought. As her thoughts fix upon one thing, they blank all others, depriving her mind of its freedom. Another example of this would be um, knitting, uh, where the hands do the work. So this this is possible in in 
activities which which are um, Or you could say rhythmical or, or constant or have a, have a repetition to them. Sweeping or um, peeling potatoes or um, walking, as we've talked about already. Then if you have to discriminate, if you have to um, calculate how many potatoes you need for a meal or, or um, work out the measurements for something you're sowing, then you have to engage the discriminating mind. And um, do that task. It's still, it's still the unborn Buddha mind, but it's moving from from non-discrimination, you could say, into discrimination. The key is to be able to drop the discrimination when it's no longer needed. That's where we often fall down. Discrimination is an um, extremely useful thing. It's, it's, uh, an aspect of being human, being able to do this in so many different ways but we get, we get stuck there, and that's when we, we are transforming the, Buddha, the unborn Buddha mind into, into something that is problematic. Let me tell you about what happened when I was in Marugame in Sanuki province. As you know, Marugame is a castle town, and when I was there, many came to listen to, the, to my talks. On one occasion, a lady showed up, accompanied by her maid servant and an elderly woman. The three of them listened and then left. Sometime afterward, the lady and the old woman came again. The lady said, before she met you, my elderly attendant here was always a willful and disagreeable creature. She would lose her temper at the slightest pretext. But you know, it's been quite a while now since we heard your teaching, and from that time till the present day, she hasn't once been ill-tempered. In fact, she's grown most wise. Everything she says is sensible and sound. She doesn't seem to have a foolish notion in her head. She's put me to shame with the examples she set. I'm certain that the reason for the change is in her change in her is simply that she's taken your teaching straight to heart. We owe it all to your influence. Such were her words, and from what I learned later, the old woman never strayed from the Buddha mind again. Uh, this is, she, uh, no doubt given he's giving this example as one for, for sudden change which is um, right from the beginnings of Zen, has been um, an important aspect of the, the teaching, this, uh, this potential we have to, to transform. And this is possible because we're not 
needing to acquire something from somewhere else, but revealing what is already there. And this change can happen um, out of the blue, at least from, from our perspective. It may, it may seem to come out of the blue. The other side is also true that there can be change which then um, has to be worked into our, our, our daily lives, into our being, because of the momentum that our habit patterns have. So it's not, there's both the need for um, gradual kind of cultivation and for sudden shifts which come through insight if we um, if we were just talking about this with somebody, if you if you um, really deeply understand that something is harmful, then not doing it is comes easily. It's when we half understand or we understand only intellectually that we struggle with our habits. That there are there are mount, countless examples of people who've who've. Um, stopped an addiction overnight, not smoked another cigarette or, or drank another glass of alcohol. And these, these, so we can take encouragement from these, these instances. But it's also true that the person who stops overnight smoking may have, have tried to give up smoking many, many times before that and not succeeded. I read somewhere that, that uh, people who are giving up spoke, smoking have on the uh, average tried six times before that to give up. What I call the unborn is the Buddha mind. This Buddha mind is unborn with a marvelous virtue of illuminative wisdom. In the unborn, all things fall right into place and remain in perfect harmony. When everything you do is done according to the unborn, the eye that sees others as they are opens in you and you know in your own mind that everyone you see is a living Buddha. That's the reason why, once you live in the unborn, you never fall back into your old ways, just like that old woman of Sanuki. Once you know the great worth of the Buddha mind, you can't leave it for illusion again. But as long as you're ignorant of its great value, you will continue to create illusions for yourself in whatever you do, insignificant things included and you will live as an unenlightened person. So one of the reasons why we have Sishin is because uh, we're endeavoring to see things clearly rather than just know them intellectually, see them clearly enough that they're transformative. see through the veils of illusion that, that we uh, carry around. 
I realise I um, didn't turn on my timer, so I've got 10 minutes more. Is that right? Yeah, I always lose track of time, yeah. So a little bit more. Um, gives another, another example of um, straying from our unborn Buddha mind. He says, in houses with domestic help, servant boys and girls are employed in large numbers. Some among them are bound to be careless with things. Occasionally, treasured dishes or other articles are broken. Perhaps it is something not even worth mentioning, but in any case, you let the blood rush to your head. You lash out and scold the offender angrily. But no matter how prized the dish or tea ball may have been, it wasn't broken deliberately. It was an accident, and now there's nothing that can be done about it. Just the same, you fly into a rage and let def the defilements from your self-centered passions transform the precious Buddha mind given to you when you were born into a fighting demon. You can always buy another teacup. Tea tastes the same anyway, whether it's from an ordinary Imari teacup or from a priceless Korean tea bowl. You can drink it just as well from either one, but a temper once lost can't easily be undone. Reading this, I had this memory long ago of, of as a small child, maybe about four or something, breaking one of my mother's um, precious Christmas tree decorations, very delicate, um, not sure what material they made it, but definitely sort of pre-plastic, something very, very delicate. And um, I was scared about it, but I went and told her that I'd, I'd broken it, and of course she was, not of course, but I was fortunate enough to have her react with understanding about it and not not um, blow up, but just one blow up from a parent to a child and something like this can be very very painful and and long have long effects. So that's what he's talking about when he says, "But a temper once lost can't easily be undone." A little thing can, can spark uh, a lot of pain in such a situation. Now, if you really understand what I've been saying about the tea bowl, you should know, without my having to tell you about them one by one, that it's the same for everything else. Whatever happens, just don't turn your Buddha minds into fighting spirits by worrying over it. Don't change them into ignorance or let your self-centered thoughts turn them into hungry ghosts. Then you will automatically be living in the unborn Buddha mind. You won't have any choice on the matter. Once you know the Buddha mind's great value, there's no way you can avoid dwelling in the unborn, even if you don't want to. I want to make you know how vitally important it is for you not to change your Buddha minds into the three poisons. So you will have to listen to me attentively and then be very careful that you don't transform your Buddha minds into something else. Three poisons here, of course, are greed, anger, and delusion, the, the um, sources of our, our suffering, different 
brands of, of uh, defilement that cause so much unhappiness. Telling people about the unborn like this, they sometimes assume it's a teaching I came up with all by myself. But that's mistaken. If you look through the sutras and other Buddhist records, you'll find that the unborn was preached in the past in various ways. The patriarchs of the Zen school mentioned it. It was heard from the golden mouth of Shakyamuni Buddha himself. Even children have known of it. But it's always the words unborn, undying that you will find. There's never any verification given to show just what this unborn, undying really is. I am the first to teach people by giving them proof of the unborn. It's understandable then that those who don't know this should make the mistake of thinking I thought up the words myself. By, by proof, he means his... his um, analogies for the nature of this unborn Buddha mind. And, and they're coming out of a direct experience of that mind. <clears throat> 